This is Roy Hales with Cortez Currents, which you can also find at CortezCurrents.ca. This is Roy Hales with Cortez Currents. Dr. Simon Donner is an interdisciplinary climate scientist at the University of British Columbia. I do research on sea level rise and coral reefs in small island developing states in the tropics. And on the surface, you would think would be the most depressing thing possible. We've done modeling and calculations that contribute to the conclusions about the fate of the world's coral reefs and that contribute to saying how hard it will be for countries to deal with sea level rise. My colleagues contributed to the idea that one and a half degrees of warming is dangerous for a lot of places. So I'm probably a weird person to sound optimistic given that work, but it honestly is because of that work, because one of the things you learn when you do this science is that 1.5 degrees of warming would be great. I don't think it's realistic that we can do it, but I am optimistic that we have solutions to a lot of this problem and we can avoid a lot of warming and reduce some of the suffering that I see is projected in our models. In today's Cortez Currents, he talks about the good news from COP26. I actually think there was a lot of good news and the good news were all of the side agreements that happened. So not so much the actual text of the Glasgow Climate Pact, but all the other things that happened outside of COP. The agreement of a bunch of countries to, to shift away from coal, the agreement to try to reduce methane, the agreements to deal with deforestation and this Glasgow financial arrangement where banks around the world are saying they're going to try to shift toward shift their, their investing towards net zero. It's stuff that happens because the conference is happening, but not inside the conference. And so I'm actually was most excited about those things. The bad is that we kick the can down the road on a lot of the hard decisions. So some of the efforts to further enhance ambition, like to set more stringent emissions targets were pushed till next year. And this one really concerns me. The plan for how to increase funding for the developing world was discussed, but the details were kicked out a year down the road. So I have to say that the COP26, it's interesting, right? There's a lot of response to it that we didn't do enough. The world didn't do enough. And I do think there's a kind of misunderstanding about what these meetings are. The UN Framework Convention on Climate Change can't solve climate change on its own. We don't have a global government and no one living in a democratic country would really want that. We don't want some global authority telling everybody in the world what they have to do. But the flip side of that is it means to deal with a collective action problem like climate change, individual countries, provinces, states, etc., have to agree to take action and negotiate with each other, both within the country, but also countries globally, have to negotiate to figure out how our individual contributions are going to solve the, help solve the problem overall. That's what's basically happening at these UN climate conferences. We don't have a centralized authority that can force action. And so the countries all have to encourage and shame each other towards action. And so you would never expect to come out of something like this with a perfect solution to the problem. And so when you keep that in mind and look at what happened at COP26, this is the first time that you've ever had out of a UN climate summit, the text of the agreement actually mentioned fossil fuel. This was like the third rail. For years, you weren't even allowed to say fossil fuels in the agreements. The facts that it's in there and the fact that all of these countries have set long-term targets of getting towards net zero, meaning we're going to stop adding greenhouse gas emissions to the atmosphere. Yes, those targets are far off in the future. And yes, there's nothing binding that forces them to do it. But the fact is we have the targets now. We didn't used to actually even have them. 
And so that the goal of these agreements is to get people to agree to those targets. And then the challenge is they have to go home and figure out how to meet the targets. And so the meeting actually accomplished a lot. The challenge is that the hard work is stuff that doesn't happen at the meeting. The hard work is the stuff that happens back home in the individual countries where they have to figure out how are we going to get to these plans. And we see that within Canada as well, where the Canadian government set a more stringent target and it has the most comprehensive sort of climate plan that Canada's ever had, but it's still not there. It's not enough to reach the target that we met, but it's certainly a step above where we were 10 years ago. I, I like what you're saying, but how long is this process going to take? <laughs> These meetings began effectively in 1992, the Rio Earth Summit in 1992. The world signed the agreement, the United Framers Convention on Climate Change, and it said that we agree we want to avoid dangerous levels of climate change. And we know that doing so is going to mean tracking and reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And so from there, there was an agreement that you were going to have conferences every year to discuss the progress towards that big goal. And Paris was one of the big markers because in Paris, we agreed on what the goal was, trying to avoid one and a half degrees of warming ideally, but for sure two degrees of warming. And so it's an, the problem with climate change is it's happening faster than we make decisions. And that the decisions we make today have a really long legacy. So whatever we, the, we have to make choices in the, now in the next two decades to determine what the climate of the planet's gonna be for hundreds, potentially to thousands of years. And the challenge with that time lag is it doesn't line up with political cycles. To what degree do these climate solutions or the targets that we have for 2050 rely on technologies that we don't have yet? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that. So. They, to some degree they do. On uh, The technologies we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, like to get off of using gasoline in passenger vehicles, to heat our homes using electricity rather than natural gas, to generate renewable energy using solar, wind, and hydro. Like the basics of all of that exists. The basics of all of that technology exists. The real challenge is in scaling all of that. Like how do we have enough battery power to power all the world's electric vehicles? Are we going to have enough minerals for that? So there's all these sort of technological solutions in there. Where I think this gets really difficult is when there are areas or sectors of greenhouse gas emissions that are going to, from human activity, that are going to be really hard to reduce. That includes things like agriculture. Trying to reduce methane emissions from agriculture, there's not that much we can do. Technologically, it's more about shifting diets. And Reducing greenhouse gas emissions from generating concrete is really hard because it literally comes from the chemistry of how concrete is created. So when you look at things like that, it means that if we want to stop adding greenhouse gas emissions to the atmosphere, we will need some technologies to pull some emissions out of the atmosphere because some of the what we emit, we probably can't stop doing realistically. And so, we, so scientists have come to calling the, these carbon removal technologies that pull it out of the air negative emissions, it's like the inverse of emissions. And the technology for that, it's not completely unproven. There are ways to do it. There's a plant in Squamish, BC that pulls CO2 out of the air. The challenge with it, of course, you have to bury it somewhere in the ground so it doesn't return to the atmosphere or bury it in the ocean. And the technology for doing that at scale, and particularly for doing it in an affordable way, like who's going to pay for it, that's not there yet. And so the problem is you look at these climate projections that come from countries and come from scientists and everything, and they often include the assumption that we're going to have some of these technologies working. In fact, starting within the next decade, that can look fanciful from the outside, 
it is hard to know whether we're going to get there with all of these proposed technologies, but it's not necessarily nefarious. It is a legitimate response to the idea that there are some forms of greenhouse gas emissions that are going to be hard to eliminate. The problem is people are taking advantage of the idea that we need these technologies for things like countering emissions from agriculture and saying, how do we use them to avoid shifting away from fossil fuels? And that's where the conversation has gotten really complicated. It starts from a good place. And then I think the idea of these technologies is being abused by some, but not by all in the fossil fuel industry to perpetuate <laughs> plans they already had going forward into the future. This being said, even if we get to net zero, there'll be some negative emissions technology connected to oil because there's probably going to be some oil and coal products that we still need. For example, like for making metallurgical coal is used to make steel. That's where most of the coal in British Columbia is used for. It might be hard because steel is an incredibly useful product to avoid all coal usage because of that. And so like negative emissions associated with steel production might make sense. Negative emissions, if they're associated with producing oil and that oil is being used to fuel passenger vehicles that we could easily make electric, that doesn't make as much sense. There's places for it, but right now I think people are banking on it for some of the wrong reasons. I've got friends who are, for example, concerned about overshooting our resources on the planet and things like that. And saying they're saying you can't just replace fossil fuels with renewables because essentially we're going to we got the problem we don't have the resources eventually the first thing to know is that there's no way to live on the planet with zero footprint right we are going to consume some resources the goal is to be as efficient as possible in the consumption of those resources meaning recycling the products if you're using fossil fuels for energy the problem is that there's this waste product, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, and it accumulates in the atmosphere and it's changing the climate. And it's not that the alternatives, renewable energy has no impact on the planet to build solar cells. We need to mine silicon. There's all sorts of different minerals that are needed. Lithium is a really important mineral for making batteries the way we make them right now for vehicles and everything. So there's going to be a footprint on the planet. And so the, in a way, you, have, you think about it as just which has the worst trade-off. And clearly, it's the impact of that greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuels are having on the planet is the one we're most concerned about at this point. But still, renewables will have a footprint. And so one of the concerns, to me, one of the big breakthroughs, I tell students this all the time, like students that are science and engineering leaning, I'm like, go into material science because this is what we're going to need going forward. We know writ large, like what the solutions are for most of these sectors that heating should go from natural gas to electric heat pumps and that passenger vehicles should go from gasoline to electric. That's understood at this point. But the details of how we're going to sustain this at scale are going to take work. It's going to take figuring out how do we build better batteries? How do we recycle batteries materials? And even things like how do we even run our charging stations? Should we have vehicles drive to the charging station and you wait 45 minutes where your car charges? Or should you drive up and swap your batteries with batteries that the station has that have already charged for you? So there's a lot of these details of how we get there have not been worked out, but I think the big picture is understood. To the extent that I have optimism, it's about understanding the big picture. And now we just have to work out each footstep on the path. Where do we go from here? I would say for the average person listening to your show, 
The most important thing to know is that there are tons of people in the country. It's really easy to get cynical about this. It's certainly understandable. You see what's just happened in BC, what's happening to everybody up the Fraser Valley right now. It's easy to feel fearful and scared and make it seem like we can't possibly do something about a problem like this. They just need to know everybody else is on board. There are all sorts of different climate solutions and policies that could be ready to go. The folks in power know that the support is out there. And I think they know writ large, like Canadians are worried about climate change. Canadians want to see action on climate change, but they don't necessarily know the details and they don't know the willingness of Canadians to put up with the challenges of a transformation. I often think like the best thing that you can do is to just talk about it. Talk about it with your friends, talk about it with your families and write letters to your local MP. I sometimes think that's, that's probably the most impactful thing somebody can do, maybe even more so than the decisions you make in your own regarding how the emissions from your own life but so much of you can just communicate about it. Because in the end, this is a collective action problem. None of us can solve it alone. We're gonna need policy to help encourage everybody down the road, right? So I'm always just like, talk about it. Make sure you're talking about it. You've been listening to Dr. You've been listening to Dr. Simon Donner, a climate scientist with the University of British Columbia, talk about some good news from COP26. This is Roy Hales with Cortez Currents. Goodbye. This is Roy Hales with Cortez Currents. Goodbye.